Good morning, guys. How are y'all today? I am in so much trouble right now, you'll have no idea. I just broke one of Mr. Bill's rocks, and so I, so whatever I say up here, it's just because I am terrified for what is going to happen when I come down. So instead of just doing announcements, I'm going to be up here for a little bit longer to delay the inevitable. <laughs> oh, so lucky. Thank you for joining us. Um, I'm Nick, and happy Sunday. This is one of my favorite days. You're welcome. Thank you all for being here. What a treat. What a joy. Uh, Mr. Bell has a really fun, really awesome message, something to share with us today, and I hope you all enjoy it as much as I did last night. Let's pray, please. Heavenly, perfect, awesome Father, thank you so, so much for this time right now, this this moment that we have. You've, you've brought us all here. Or we're in the seats, and and there's a purpose for it. As, as chaotic as it all seems, we are here for a purpose. And may we open our, our, our eyes and our ears and our hearts and, and hear your purpose. Thank you so, so much for this time that we have. Amen. Amen. Thank you for doing Sir. that, Nick. I appreciate you. Uh, precision timing. He got here... He was upstairs with his kids, ran in at the last minute. I was ready to give announcements. I was ready to stand in, but you got the professional, so all good for you guys. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Bill. You may be a visitor here or out in Cyberland somewhere. Uh, today we're continuing a study that we've been doing as a church. We call it a travelogue. We've been moving to different places that are talked about in the Bible. We've been meeting the people who were there at those particular times, the places we went, and looked at the events that were taking place and, and how they change our lives today, how we can learn from what happened uh, over the years. We, we started at the Garden of Eden, and we've been moving ourselves forward. Three weeks ago, we started with the life of Jesus Christ. We started, we started with his birth. Uh, we went to uh, the first place on the travel log with him was we, we went to Bethlehem. And, and we looked at God and his son, not as a conquering hero, but as a, but as a baby in a manger. In the, I would say he entered this world through the lowest possible door. There wasn't even room for him in the inn. Uh, so he's, he's out in a barn. The angels come and announce his presence. So that was in Bethlehem. That was three weeks ago. Two weeks ago, uh, we went to the Sea of Galilee. And at the Sea of Galilee is where Jesus announced his ministry, announced himself. It was 30 years later. So he went from birth to 30 years old uh, at, when he started to, to travel and introduce what he called the kingdom of God. A kingdom that was among us because Christ was among us. He, there was healings. There was miracles. He, he walked on water, uh, produced food, uh, raised the dead. And again, I always point this out. One of my, he healed lepers. This, this chronic destructive disease that was existent at their time that required as people's flesh rotted off them. Uh, they were isolated. They couldn't go around people. And Jesus went to him, and when he healed him, he actually reaches out and, and touched the, the decayed skin that was falling off, and, and they were healed and restored. Uh, he was doing these things. He was gathering a crowd. He, there were a group of disciples that, that followed him as he went. He was teaching them. He was teaching them about what it means to follow the real God, about how to have a heart for God, not a religion of works that was being offered at that time. It was he transformed what was taking place. We talked about the Sermon on the Mount, the most important message ever given that is absolutely opposite human nature, impossible for us to do without Christ. And then last week, we went to Jerusalem. Dion guided us through some of the things that he did at Jerusalem uh, while he was there. When he came to this temple, which was the center of worship to the people of Israel at that time, uh, how, he, how he challenged them and he cleansed the temple. He did these things. That was last week. This week, we're going to talk about that last week. And we're going to talk about an interesting part of it. This, this slide gives us a good picture. Jesus comes in on what we call Palm Sunday, 2,000 years ago. Uh, as, as they're celebrating, Jerusalem is full of people. An extra million people pack into this city. Uh, that is there. They're travelers. They're required to be there to, to, to celebrate Passover. It was, a, it was a hot, like Christmas for us is what they were doing with this holiday celebration. And he walks in. 
He's, he comes in, his fame has gone before him. He, people had seen him do miracles. Walking in with him was a man named Lazarus who lived just a couple of miles from Jerusalem who had been raised from the dead. Most of the people, because it just spread like wildfire, the news of that throughout the, the city of Jerusalem uh, and actually the countryside around it. He had raised the dead of someone that they knew. And he's walking in with them. Now, Lazarus is with Jesus as he walks in, riding, riding on a mule, uh, a little donkey is prophesied about him. And the people are screaming out. They're, they're going crazy. They're, they're going, this Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is it. Even the king of Israel. The first day of this week, which, which would be the, the, the 10th of the month, he was, he was declared king. Now, they were living under uh, Roman occupation, suppression, pain, the even on the Jewish side, King Herod was a tyrant. Uh, and so they walk and he says, here's our king. Let's get rid of these other guys. This is it. It was excitement all the way around. God has answered. The, when he came, the angels promised that you were going to have a Messiah. You, you, you were going to have a savior. You were going to have a Lord, a king to rule over you. And so this is all coming. And this is in their view as he walks in. The city goes crazy. The city goes crazy. This, this is the 10th of that. This is that Sunday crying these things out. That's how the week started. He, he rode. They were doing this. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They looked at freedom taking place. Four days later, 14th of the month, Jesus is arrested, betrayed, deserted by those who he loved, uh, beaten, condemned, by the Roman and, and the religious leaders of the time. Uh, the crowds weren't crying out, Hosanna, here comes the king anymore. The crowd is calling out, crucify him. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. They chose a, a thief, an insurrectionist, someone who was advocating and trying to carry out the military overtake overtaking the Roman government and throwing them out. So they, they took away the one, their true king, and they took on an imposter. They chose him, though. It was, it was a choice they had. Uh, they cried out, away with him. You know, this is, this is the week that we're talking about. This, this, we're going to go from that Sunday to the next Sunday. In the middle of this week is... Is, is one of those stakes that were driven in the ground because we're going to talk about how he interacted with his disciples. His disciples were those who were chosen out. It's just not 12. There was 120 to 130 people. One time he sent out 70 people. So there was a group of people that were with him. Uh, and so he was working and training them, specifically the 12, in how to carry on his mission. His, his whole life was focused around preparing for them to go out. And in the middle of the week, just as he's coming to that place, right before he's betrayed, Jesus takes bread, gathers them together. He's celebrating the Feast of Passover. The Feast of Passover is about a deliverance from bondage, from uh, sinful oppression in this world. And Christ had come to deliver us from sinful oppression of this world also. So he says, how does he do it? He doesn't, he doesn't muster an army. He says, here, take Take this bread, this is my body, it's going to be broken for you. And then he takes a cup and he says, pass it around. And he says, this is my blood. They, they, the Jewish people totally understood that the sacrifice of blood was to cover sin. So he passes it around. He says, this is for sin. And as, as often as you do this, we're to remember him. And we're going to do that today. We're going to stop and, and let Christ offer us the forgiveness, the grace of his body and his blood at the end when we take communion together. But in the middle of the week, he starts his teaching with them. And, and so what we're going to do is we're going to uh, talk about his final words. What did he say? This is what, what took place during this particular week uh, as he went forward. Because uh, at the end of this week, he's going to be subjected to trials, to torture. His flesh will be beaten to the point that it will come off of him. And they'll crucify him. He'll be, he'll be stripped naked, literally, and nailed to a cross. Where we picture it in our mind, the brutality of it and everything else that is there. Uh, 
he cries out. Now, remember where we are. We're, we're on this, this Friday. We call it Good Friday. At 6 o'clock, he was standing trial. He'd spent the night before at Caiaphas's house. We'll actually see some pictures of that in a minute. Uh, he spent the night at Caiaphas' house in a dungeon. They were beating him and beginning to torture. So that morning, they brought him to the Jewish leaders. The Jewish leaders uh, condemned him, took him to Pontius Pilate, the Roman leader, uh, to be able to kill him, to crucify him, to put him to death, to get him out of the way. And so this, by 9 o'clock, everything's been done. Before they take him, they whip him with a Roman whip, which is a, a, like a, a all little uh, leather thongs, but they've got pieces of lead in the tips of those. So as they beat him, uh, his back started to bleed profusely. They said that uh, medical terms today that analyze crucifixion, he was already bleeding out before he got to the cross. They, they forced a crown of thorns upon his head. They took him. Uh, put him on the cross. This was, this was at nine in the morning. This, by the way, was the time of the morning sacrifice at their temple. Uh, at noon, the sky goes dark, not an eclipse. Because it was a full moon, you can't have an eclipse in a full moon. God put his hand in front of the sun somehow, some way. It's just like he's God. He can do things like that. And so he covers the sun and it goes dark. There's reports from Egypt of this phenomena taking place, totally removed, but evidence that the sun went dark in that part of the country for that period of time between 12 o'clock and 3 o'clock in the afternoon. At 3 o'clock in the afternoon, after Jesus had been mocked, nailed to the cross, uh, took the time when he was there to, to talk to the thieves that were nailed with him on the cross. One of them turns to him and says, hey, Remember me when you enter your kingdom. He acknowledges Christ for who he is. And, and the response is, today you'll be with me in paradise. Wow. You know, that's, that's so cool. But he, there was more. His family is there. His, his disciples are there. They're watching him in the torture that's taking place. Uh, his, he calls his mom out, his, his right here, Mary, and, and the apostle John, and says, okay, uh, Mary, this is now your son. He's going to take care of you. John, take care of her. You're now, she's now your mother. This transfer takes place. He cares. This is between 12 and 3. At 3 o'clock, important to remember, this is the time when in the temple, the Jewish leaders who had rejected Jesus are sacrificing uh, an animal at 3 o'clock every day. It was ritual for them. People gathered. It was a big ceremony, like the changing of the guard at Arlington. People are watching. They sacrifice this at 3 o'clock. So they all are in the temple looking at this taking place, sacrifice taking place. But at 3 o'clock, something else is taking place. At 3 o'clock, Jesus cries out with a loud voice and yields up his spirit. He gives up his spirit. In, in other descriptions of this, he says the word, it is finished. It's finished. And that, by the way, in the original language is a word called telestai, which means paid in full. It's done. When, when he died, he accomplished his mission. My sins were paid for. So were yours. So was everyone who's ever lived. Whether we accept it or not, that's on us. Christ did his part. At three, when he said, it is finished. It was finished. But that wasn't the only thing that happened. At 3 o'clock, after the sun had been darkened uh, throughout that day, they, uh, he yielded up his spirit. The curtain, a six-inch thick curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place, was ripped from top to bottom. A truly miraculous, impossible thing that took place. The earth shook, the rocks split, the tombs were open. People who had passed away were actually seen walking around uh, they were in the holy city and they were appearing to many. The centurion was there. Now, a centurion, we don't, we don't have that rank in our military right now. He would be a sergeant major maybe uh, in our thing, but he was combat hardened. He was trained. Uh, he, was, he was a warrior. And he was in charge, one of the centurions. He has 100 men under him. He's one of the people out there at the, at the cross watching Jesus die and seeing everything that took place. He turns and he says, oh my goodness. He saw the earthquake and shook everything that filled and said, truly, truly, this was the Son of God. Now, don't miss the irony. 
the Jewish people who considered themselves so righteous, so holy, that they wouldn't even go out in public, that they had all these rules and regulations, that they had their act together, were clueless. A Roman soldier stands and looks at the evidence and says, this was the Son of God. Everything changes in time and history as that takes place as we go forward. We, we know this was, this was, this was 3 p.m. on Friday. He dies. He's taken off the cross. He has to be buried by 6 because their Sabbath, their Passover starts. And so he's got to be put in a tomb. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea uh, and Nicodemus get his body, get permission because they're well-known Jewish leaders who believed in him and put him in a tomb, a borrowed tomb, Joseph's, a very uh, nice tomb near the, near the burial place. And so he, he's buried before sun goes down. His followers see where he is. Saturday, they're, they're, they're cowering and hiding inside of their, uh, all the rest of Friday, Saturday, uh, all the way till Sunday morning. When the sun comes up, Sabbath is over, holiday's over, they can move about. And so the, the, the ladies, the, the brave men, send the women to the tomb. I was all female laughing. That's all I heard. Uh, but sends them to the tomb. And the angel appears to him and says, you know, and he said to the woman, don't, don't be afraid, for I know you seek Jesus. He was crucified. He's not here. He's risen. This is, the, this is our Easter slide from this year. The most important event is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It changes everything. Literally, God has done everything that he can to open a path between us and heaven through the death of Jesus Christ. And he rose from the dead. So we're going to focus on those last hours from his triumphal entry till the time when he rises from the dead today. We're going to see God's love displayed to the world. We're going to see Jesus' invitation for us to follow him and how we can lay down our lives for him as he laid down his life for us. That's where we're going. But one of the reasons that Jesus came, and it, it comes out in several of his teachings, he came to tell us the truth. Because, you see, none of the things that I just said makes any sense. It should not change your life one bit. And it will not, unless you believe it's true. Unless you believe it. To the point of conviction, not mental assent to saying, yeah, that's a true fact, got that. But actually responding to that truth and laying your, down, your life down for it. Jesus said to, to the Jews and the people, his followers at that time who believed in him, if you abide in my word, abide, intimately collect, connect. You are truly my disciples, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. There are people here listening as I speak who know the truth, and they've been set free, set free from sin, set free from the control of sin in our life, Jesus makes this statement that divides the world. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is bold. All the religions, we live in a world where there's many paths to God. We can kind of pick our own. We can create our own God. We can create our own path. We are now taught and trained in schools to develop our own truth, our personal truth, overall truth, our life is under our control. We can do what we want, and we can find our path. There's many paths to God. Jesus says, no, there's not. And this isn't arrogance. This is just truth. No one listening to me has any concept or idea or plan to go to an unholy, fallen, miserable heaven and spend the rest of your life there. That would be hell. Oh, literally. We want to go to a holy heaven. For a holy heaven and, and people to be there, we have to have our sins paid for. Jesus Christ is the only path, the only offer, the only sacrifice of all the religious systems that is able to deal with sin. It is only through Christ that we can have hope because of the events of that Friday. As Christ said, it is finished and our sins are gone. Jesus claims to be the truth. He is. He claims to be the life. He is. It's this word Zoe, the abundant life that he promises us. He's the life. He's the way. If you follow his way. He, and he is the only path to God. Those words change the world. 
He had stated them before. He had given us the information in what was one time the best-known verse in our country. For God so loved the world. For God so loved me. For God so loved Bill. For God so loved you that he gave his life for you individually, specifically. And he died personally and individually for each of our sins. They were listed and nailed to that cross. They were paid for. What we do with that is up to us. That's just the truth. That's the reality that took place there. You know, he showed us his love in certain ways that we cannot turn the other way. If we choose not to believe that to the point of laying our lives down, that's our choice. He says, you know, this is the, that is the judgment. Because the judgment is, is removed in Christ, but the judgment is that light, Jesus Christ, came into the world. But if we love darkness, we're not going to go to the light. When, when I was running and gunning and my, all my sin and stupidity and stuff like that, I didn't want to go to the light. I, it, you know, the, the deeds were evil. And so I didn't want that exposed. So I stayed away from God, stayed away from that. It was all hooey-dooey. Uh, I thought I was so cool that, that God would forgive anything that I did because I was really a good person. I don't care what a jerk I was. In my mind, I was a good person. And so uh, I avoided it, and that's the problem today. The problem with the avoidance of Jesus Christ is not theology. It's not truth. It's not lack of evidence because all of that's there. It's we don't want our sins exposed. We don't want to come and confess that we're sinners and we can't save ourselves. So Jesus Christ came in and did that. But Jesus Christ is the issue. It's the issue then. It's the issue now. It'll be the issue when we stand in front of God. And we all will. Uh, one of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, wrote a book called Mere Christianity, which I think is, a, is almost a mandatory reading for followers of Christ. Uh, C.S. Lewis was a brilliant scholar, a professor, uh, at Oxford University for many years, an atheist, out to disprove God. We'll see, see about this in a little while. He, wanted, he didn't believe in God, wanted to disprove God. He looked at the evidence and became a Christian. Ultimately, he saw that Jesus Christ was the issue, and he was listening to what people were saying. They were saying he's a good moral teacher. He's this, he's that, and everything else. Here's his quote. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. C.S. Lewis responds in Mere Christianity, he says, I'm trying to stay, I'm, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I, you know, I think Jesus is way cool. I think Jesus, you know, lived and he walked and this teachings, whoa, he was a great moral teacher. But stop there. He says, no, no, uh, I can't accept his claim as God. He's a teacher, not God. That's one thing we can't say. Just, we can't say that he's a good moral teacher because, because he didn't give us that option. He didn't give us that choice. We can't say he's merely a man and, and said the sort of things that Jesus said and he would, couldn't be a moral teacher because he was claiming to be God. He would either be, someone claiming to be God would either be a lunatic, and I love this next line, on the level of someone who says, I'm a poached egg, it, or, or, or he's a deceiver and the devil from hell. We have to make our choice. Either Jesus Christ, this man, was and is and will always be, by the way, the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. We can shut him up as a fool, and many people do. You can spit at him, and they did. You can kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But please, please, let us not come, you know, with patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher or just one path to God. He didn't leave that option open. Either he's the living God, the only way to know God, to have our sins removed, or he's not. And that's the challenge that's, that's put before us as we, as we talk about Jesus this last week of his life. Why would we believe it? Because he gave us proof. He gave us proof. First, and we'll talk about this more next week, through prophecy. God does nothing without revealing his, what's going, his secrets to the prophets. He tells us the future. 
He challenges every other God in religion. If, if you've had people knocking at your door trying to say this, you're listening to people on TV and they've got these some wackadoodle theories out there and that, if they can't tell you accurately the, the uh, fulfilled prophecies, well, they're no one. It's just like a tour guide of, of 9-11 the week before. Uh, uh, September 4th stands there and takes a tour guide down Washington, comes to the Twin Towers and says, oh, by the way, Next week, these two will be gone. There'll be nothing but rubble on the ground. You would go, what's your money back from that tour? On September 12th, after 9-11, you would go looking for that guide because there was a supernatural being that moved and spoke. God speaks. He tells us what's going to happen. And, and we're going to next week, we're going to spend a lot of time in Luke because Jesus, after his resurrection, intercepts two of his followers going to a village called Emmaus. And he gives them what all of us want. He gives them a personal lesson on prophecy. This is what it is. This is what's going to happen. And so next week, we'll actually take that. But that's the proof uh, that I want to point out that, that is first. That's next week. What are some other proofs? Well, history is, is certainly proof. These things happened in, in time and space. The Jewish historians record it. The Romans uh, record it. Uh, obviously, the Christians do, but just Jerusalem screams at us. There's a verse uh, that talks about the rocks will cry out to us. They will let us know what's coming. So, I brought my rock. This is actually from the Mount of Olives, because Jesus said, uh, if, when he marched up the Mount of Olives, he said that, boy, if you weren't declaring me king, the rocks would cry out. So I brought my rock. A friend of mine gave this to me. I, uh, I was so touched by it. And uh, someone dropped it, and of course, it's got a piece now. So I've got another piece available. <laughs> Uh, I ought to auction it off. Uh, but walking in Israel, understanding that a nation that was scattered for 2,000 years, it was prophesied that it would be made a nation in one day when the United Nations said, this is a nation, Harry Truman recognized it, it became a nation in one day. Incredible. You can walk in Israel and hear the stones cry out. I'm just going to do a quick thing that everyone hates to do when your relatives invite you over and they start showing you slides. Uh, here it is. The first time we were on a bus, we came up and they actually stopped off to the side. We'd been in Israel for several days and we were going to Jerusalem. So they stopped. It's the first time you could get a good view of it. So we all got out of the bus, you know, like good little touristas, and, and walked over there and, and there it was. The city that's claimed by three major religions, the city that Jesus walked in, that he died in, that he rose from the dead. And this is exactly where he's coming back to. So I remember we, we took a look at it, and obviously the, the dominant feature of the Dome of the Rock in the middle of it, uh, the Bible describes that that area is given over uh, until the end of the age of the Gentiles. So there's a future date that when Christ comes back, that'll change. But for now, that's the reality that we saw the next thing, uh, I wanted to put this up because it's, uh, it's the eastern gate. This is the gate when Jesus comes back that he's going to walk through. Several armies, by the way, have tried to go through that gate and have been unable to because Jesus said only he's going to go through it. So in, uh, there's, there's one of the stories that's on the Internet now is that growing on that is ivy. And it's actually starting to spell out the four letters of the, how Jews identify the name of God growing on that. So uh, I guess he's getting his name played out. The next place that we looked at uh, was what they call the upper room. This is where communion was offered. But subsequent to that, after that, uh, the, the 120 followers of Jesus Christ gathered together, huddled together in this room, and that's when the day of Pentecost came. Uh, next uh, slide is... Uh, of an olive tree, because Jesus goes from communion in the upper room, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the Garden of Gethsemane that's uh, right down in a valley between uh, uh, Jerusalem and Bethany. 
and these are olive trees. One of the things, I didn't know this. Uh, they'll point out to you that when olive trees grow, they grow by spreading out and putting down new tubers and, and growing. So what you're seeing is, is actually decades, and they were saying centuries of growth on an olive tree. If it was centuries, then these, they would like us to believe that these were the ones that were there when Jesus came. Uh, could be, but there were olive trees. He was in a garden, and this is exactly where it was. They know the location of the garden. Uh, so went there, and I, I wanted to get a picture of that olive tree um, as we did that. The next is, a, is, a, is, is our three pictures put together. This is strange, because when Jesus was captured, he was taken to Caiaphas's house, not the high priest, but, but part of the priestly family. And he was tried there at the Caiaphas house. His disciples, Peter, followed him. And so this is, this is where he was in the night trial with the Jewish leaders. Interesting, on the left is a pillar that's there in the middle of a, of a patio. And you may not know what that is if you not explain it. The top of it is a rooster. Now, if you know the story of Jesus and Peter's betrayal, there'll be a rooster that's going to crow three times. Well, they've, they've got the rooster there. And they've got Peter cowering down below and three people saying, oh, by the way, weren't you one of his and he denies Christ? In the one gospel, Jesus turns and looked at him as he does it the third time. Not in condemnation, oh please. Just in love. So there's Peter. In the middle, they said, and this is something that as you come to Israel, you, you know Jesus walked there. They say this is actually when he left Caiaphas' house. These are the stairs he went up. On the right, at under Caiaphas' house that they've identified was a pit. And they would say this is probably where Jesus spent the night waiting for his trial. So uh, Jerusalem. Uh, the next one is, as, as, you, as you leave that, you come to, this is the, the Via Dolorosa, the Way of Tears, uh, where Jesus walked with his cross. That arch over the top is the thing that uh, actually uh, was there in the time of Jesus. Not that arch, but there's an interior arch. They combined two arches to make this big one. Uh, it's where it was said, where, G, where Pontius Pilate walked out with Jesus, and he said in Latin, uh, Echo homo, behold the man. And uh, Jesus with his crown of thorns would have walked out in that particular arch over uh, the path that he would ultimately take. Another picture of the path. Uh, some places people are, would walk, some people carry crosses and walk all the way down it. Uh, interesting, though, my favorite place on the Via Dorosa was not a place of mourning and, and it was shopping. They all along certain portions of it, you can buy the best pastries you've ever tasted as you go along the Via Dorosa. Not exactly a spiritual experience, uh, but I was feeding something other than my soul. It was good stuff, but this is this is part of it. And then and then this is this is the picture that was there. We. We remember it. We, we look. These are, these are the stones crying out. There's proof. If you just continue, archaeologists will talk about everyone trying to disprove. If you honestly try and disprove it, you become a follower and a believer. But Jesus offers us something else in proof. The, actually, the proof of Jesus Christ is the resurrection from the dead. He told the people at that time, I'm only going to give you one sign. I'll give you the sign of Jonah, who spent three days in the belly of a whale. I will spend three days in the bowels of the earth, but I will rise again. And that's exactly what he did. Uh, he rose uh, as he did it. Here's, by the way, a picture of Gordon's tomb. We'll talk about it in a minute. This is an empty tomb. They'll take you there, and, and you'll go look and verify that it's empty. Uh, it is. I checked. Uh, he did rise from the dead. And so... Uh, but he gave proof. He gave proof. He offered proof to Thomas. Because he, when he came back, the most important thing, is, say this the right way, it isn't that he died. It isn't that he was buried. But clear evidence that he rose from the dead. Because God then says, I accepted his sacrifice for your sins. And so uh, the verse will say that, uh, uh, what sign do I have from you? It says, three days. And then when he came back, he got his disciples, and he appeared to them. We're going to talk next week about 40 days. 40 days he gave many convincing proofs. This is with his doubting Thomas 
He says, we want you to believe, just like he wants me to believe and he wants you to believe. He says, put your hands in the holes of his side or his hand, investigating. It's true. And so he continued this, showing himself 40 days, at one time 500 people, and it became the cornerstone. It is the cornerstone, always be the cornerstone of Christianity, that we have a living Jesus Christ. He's here right now. He's present with each of his followers. He's present with each of the people that reject him. He's a God that's all present, all knowing, all loving. He's here. If, if Christ hasn't been raised from uh, raised, then our faith is futile. It's a waste. We're still in our sins. And those who have gone before, they're dead in the ground and we'll never see him again. The only hope that we carry is the evidence and the proof of Christ alive, not only in the world, but in us. That is our hope. And I, I put together this list quickly. I encourage you, if you have doubts, go dis try to disprove it. These are people who are uh, all atheists, all set out to disprove the existence of God and his resurrection, and the proof of the scripture, everything. They set out to do that. That was, And these are brilliant men. Read their history, their background. Uh, Lee Strobel, a journalistic reporter for the Chicago Tribune, a lawyer, went out to disprove it. He ended up finding that Christ was risen from the dead. He wrote the book, Case for Christ, Case for Creator, Case for Faith, Case for Miracles. He, he, he as a lawyer in his casework, but all of it's presented. He became a Christian. Josh McDowell challenged by a young, as a, uh, by a young teenage girl in college saying, well, if you, if you don't believe in Christianity, just poof, go disprove the resurrection. Three years of going all around the world, searching everywhere for evidence to disprove the resurrection. Ultimately, he says it's true and becomes a Christian. C.S. Lewis, I've already talked about. Uh, Simon Greenleaf, the founder of the Harvard Law School. Uh, chief founder of the Harvard Law School. He's the one that wrote the book on evidence. One of his students say, hey, pro, hey, pro, I don't know what you call it. Hey, prof, or I wouldn't be disrespectful because he gives grades. I was always very careful about that. Uh, I was always at the margin to fail anyway. So, uh, but they challenge you. You use those rules of evidence that you say and demand our courts and investigate Christ. He did. He became a Christian. Uh, Sir William Ramsey, highly respected archaeologist, went to be to the Middle East to disprove the Bible and the Book of Acts. Becomes a Christian. Uh, Frank Morrison, he wrote a book called, which is one of those, "Who Moved the Stone?" It's a classic. Another atheist, J. Wallace, J. Warner Wallace, is a current uh, investigator who works on cold cases as a detective. He applied those principles to Jesus Christ. Became a Christian. The evidence is clear to anyone who honestly seeks and looks. So Jesus spent a week in Jerusalem, spent three years on earth ministering to people, 30 years total, 33 years total. And his last week, what was most important to him? Chapters 13 through 17 of the Gospel of John. I'm just going to bullet them, but I want you to get his heart. Because if I was to know that I'm going to die uh, very soon, there's some things that I would want to make sure that I left. I would, I would want to be able to tell my family or, or anyone where I was, what I learned, what, could, what do I want to pass on. And that's what Jesus did because he's, he's coming to the end of his run and he gets his disciples together and he gathers them together and he starts talking to him. So the first thing that he did, that Jesus, the most important thing, he said the first thing was to wash their feet. Really? The most important thing I'm going to do is go home and do the dishes? Take the trash out? Yeah. That's what Jesus did. Because he did that. He, he knew, listen, knowing the Father had given all things into his hand, that he came from God, he's going back to God. He takes off his, his, his hangout stuff, puts a towel around him, gets down on his knees, and he starts washing the stinky, dirty feet of his disciples. When he's finished, he stands up and he says, do you know what I've done? Do you know what I just put in front of you after he had done that? Do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord. Oh, and you're right. He says, I'm, I'm God. I'm your teacher. 
I'm who you know that I am. He says, I washed your feet. You do the same. The last and most important thing, he tells him, you go, you go serve other people. You be a humble servant. And as a, as a dad or a friend or anything else, and I'm talking to someone else and I have words, please be a servant from the heart. And, and, and then he says, have the right attitude. I, I love this verse. Uh, it, it's, don't do anything from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, consider everyone else as more important than yourself. Have this attitude in you that was in Christ Jesus. He existed as God. He puts God aside, comes to earth to the point of death on the cross for your sins and mine. He says, have that attitude. This is what he wanted his disciples to know. And oh, by the way, they did. Disciples died for their faith, professing their testimony. But he also, if I'm leaving, I want to tell you and everyone else that there's hope. And Jesus does that for his disciples. He says, don't lose hope. He says, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe in me. I'm, my father's got many houses. I've got many rooms. I'm going to go get a place for you. I'm, and I'm coming back. And yes, he is. And the signs of the times, uh, sooner than later, he's coming back. And he's prepared a place for us. He'll come and he'll descend and it'll be like the wedding lamb, the wedding supper of the lamb as he comes back. He'll come back and he'll rule and reign on this earth. But until he comes back, we know we can have peace on this earth. This earth, oh my goodness. We're just reminded in just recently of the chaos, the pain, the destruction. He says, in the world, you're going to have tribulation. But in Christ, we can overcome the world. There's his hope. But he invites us into a relationship with him. One of the most amazing things is that God sends his son not to condemn the world, but to save the world. To offer you and me a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. He offers that to us. That night when he, when he took the communion cup and he passes it around, he says, now do this in remembrance of me. When we take communion, it's, it's in remembrance of him. It's to remember his blood, to remember the body that was broken for us. It's a reminder of what Christ went through for you and me that, that we might spend eternity with him. He's, and we do this, if that last line, we will continue to do this. We will do this as we proclaim Jesus' death until he comes again. That's our job, not only to proclaim it to ourselves, but to tell a world, that, oh boy, needs help, needs a savior. We have the truth and the answer. We can do that. How do we do that? This is, this is the challenging part. So buckle up, get your guards up, because Jesus made no, there's no wishy-washy there. Jesus says, if you want to follow him, you have to take up your cross and you have to follow him. Now, this Jesus says, if anyone want to catch me, he has to deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. We live in a world of self and self-seeking and, and we want control and all that other stuff. Jesus says, good. But if you want to follow me, you have to lay that down. He says, if we try to hang on to one part of our life, we can't follow him. He says, you know, everyone can have to be, let him deny himself, take up his cross. They knew what the cross was. They knew. They had seen hundreds, probably thousands of people die an agonizing death on the cross. They knew what it meant. Today it would be take up your electric chair, take up this, take up that, take up a new... I was, when I was on a mission team, uh, for a while we would go to Mexico and after at certain times during this trip, there'd be like a hundred men and we'd get in a restaurant and they'd say, okay, now we're going to have court. And the judge would come in. The awesome, fearful judge would come in. Uh, it would be me in a black robe with a wig, and I looked really good in a wig. And I was carrying a Bible, because those heathen on the frontier needed the law. I was carrying a gavel so I could drop judgment. But I also carried a very well-structured noose, hangman's noose. 
that I would lay on the table with the gavel and the Bible and everything else, and the condemnation would flow, and we would fleece them of all their money because of their crimes that they had committed on that trip. It was really fun. I, I miss that. I don't think they do, but I do. But the news, we understand what that means. They understood what the cross means. We need to understand what carrying our cross means. It's a choice of life or death, and to follow Christ, we have to choose death. We have to be crucified with Christ. We have to lay our lives down for him like he laid his life down for us. He set an example. He gave us an attitude. And he said, follow me. Because to have our sins forgiven, we have to lay that sinful life down. But it's the only way we can get Christ to live through us. A follower of Christ gets this incredible opportunity to have Christ actually live in us and work through us. And you can look at the history of the world just as there's proof of sin in the world and we go, why is that? The real question is, why is there good in the world? And the answer to that is Jesus Christ working through his followers. You know, that's, that's the center of the Christian message. We need to totally understand it. Jesus is the only way. Oh, and get the second part. He will then live through us. One of my favorite authors and someone I really recommend is a guy named A.W. Tozer. He, uh, I read several of his books. I'm rereading one called the, Inv the Crucified Life by Tozer. And here's what he said. He said, we need to emphasize. I just read this this week and I said, I got to share it. We what we need to emphasize is that God has saved us to make us like his son. His purpose is to catch us, and here's me, on our own wild ride to hell and turn us around because he knows us. Bring judgment on the old self and then create a new self within us, which is Jesus Christ. There's a, there's a process there to save each of us from hell and to offer us forgiveness, grace, and a new life with Christ in us. This is the incredible offer. It, I, I, there's two books. There's one called The Radical Cross, and, and, and there's one called The Crucified Life, A.W. Tozer. I, I, I went and I, there's several of them on the counter in the back. If you will read it, and if you, if you have any questions of where you stand with Christ, pick one up. And the, it, it, if everyone goes and picks one up, we'll get a couple hundred next week and give them out. But we got a supply back there now, so do that. Uh, because we're going to have communion. And the warning of communion, if anyone eats or drinks the cup, communion of the Lord, in an unworthy manner, he becomes guilty. There's a, there's, a, there's a sacred sacrament that we're going to take. We are going to come forward and take symbolically the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. He tells us to do that, to remember, for Christ's followers, we should do that. But, but he says, oh, by the way, be careful. Let a person examine himself and then eat the bread and drink the cup. Because if we do it in an unworthy manner, the, the problem is the challenge of being a follower of Christ. Uh, many will become ill or sick. We're to examine ourselves to see the, whether of the faith. Test ourselves to see where we belong. Is Jesus Christ in us? Unless we fail the test. This is, this is the challenge that we have. Why is this so important in 2021? You know it as well as I do. We have fallen from God. We have made up our own paths to God. As a nation, we've chosen false teachings as we do it. Here's a, here's a, here's a list of statistics that talk about where we are as a nation. The philosophy of the schoolroom 60 years ago has ultimately become the philosophy of the government, of the media, of everything that we have. The dominant worldview, how we see people in the United States, only 6% have a biblical worldview. If over 50% attend church regularly, only 6%. 2% humanistic beliefs, postmodernism, but syncretism. Syncretism, now there's a stinky word to pronounce. 
Can't say it 10 times fast. I, I got ready and I, I said, where did I hear that word first? And it was interesting that George Barna, who put this study out, I read a book of his in 1990. Yes, I'm that old and I could read in 1990. I know you thought I was like 30, but <laughs> no, the Marine laughed at me. Uh, but, but 30 years ago, I read the book and it's called The Frog in the Kettle. It's a story of the Christianity in our country being like a frog in a kettle as the temperature rises slowly, slowly, slowly. The frog never jumped out. He said that's what's going to happen to our country in the future. He said that when 76% of the people in this country claim to be Christians. And almost 20% were biblical Christians. 30 years the progression has taken place, syncretism, grabbing a little bit of here, a little Hinduism, a little karma here, a little bit of I'm a good person, how about Dr. Phil over here, I'm going to buy a little Oprah as I go by, uh, I'm going to do this, I'm going to you know, find all these good, great ideas, syncretism, that's the dominant religion that's in our country today. How'd that happen? Well, we started following our feelings. We decided to take the facts and throw them in the ditch. All the evidence for Christ, we threw it off to the side. And we just thought we'd do what's right in our own eyes because absolutely, I'm the best one to decide what's good for me. I'm going to find myself. I'm going to make my own path. When there is no law, people, there's no king or law or rule. You just do what's right. You hear it all the time. It's been taught in school for 50 years, values clarification that are taking place, Maslow's teaching that have been taking place, and we've been indoctrinated. And what we've been indoctrinated into, really, is the cult of self. Two choices. We find ourselves in, in two camps here. We either are part of the, the cult of self. We think that we have the answers. Here's, here's a slide that, that shows what that looks like inside of our nation today. Over 90, I'd say 96, 90 plus percent in our country have a self-centered life. And this is, if, if our major focus in life is self, if we, if we think that God came just to make us happy, which 80% of the people in our country do, he didn't come to make us happy, he came to make us holy. And in holiness and following him, we'll find happiness or joy in the self-centered life, I'm the boss. I was the boss for 33 years. If we haven't accepted Christ, no matter what we say, we're running our own life. What's important to us is our self-righteousness. We earn our own righteousness. Self-confidence, self-esteem that everyone says, go seek self-esteem. Oh, that's from the pit of hell. Self-actualization, let's make me look really good. Self-love, if you don't love yourself, you can't love anyone else. Another lie from the pit of hell. I have never had any trouble loving myself. By the way, I, I, as a matter of fact, before I used to tell you, I would have told you how cool I was. Uh, Self-determination, justification, self-focus. Christ is outside the picture. See where he is? I defined my Christ. My Christ was... My little Christ that I could control. I love this example. My Jesus. I made him. That's what this picture tells you. He's outside the circle. Uh, all my interests are directed by myself. Self is on the throne. A Christ follower. The other option. The transformed life. The Christian that gives his life to Christ. God is now in charge of our life. We're yielding to Christ. He tells us to do. We will do what he tells us to do lovingly. Our interests are directed by Christ. We don't have self-righteousness. We've got Christ-righteousness. We don't, we don't have self-confidence. We have Christ-confidence because we have Christ-esteem is what we're seeking. All of the above, Christ-focused, Christ-controlled. One or the other. And very important before communion, we choose. Because communion is about the Christ-focused life. Because Christ makes us a new creation. Old things pass away. Uh, I was still, I looked the same, but there was a transformation that's taken place over the 40-some years. A change. Something new. And I always like to compare it to a wedding, so please indulge me for a moment. Because Christ compares 
our relationship with him as he is, he is the uh, husband coming back. We are the bride of Christ. And he says that therefore a man will leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife. Two shall become one. The mystery of this in a marriage is profound. But he's saying it's an example of Christ in the church. When, when a marriage takes place, you know, a husband and all of his groomsmen and a bride and all of her bridesmaids are here. And they are so excited. I don't think, as much as you try, that we'll ever understand marriage until we've been in it for a while, even as a good, committed Christian. Because when you walk up and you say, I do, everything before changed. We're no longer single. We have a new status. We are now united with a partner for life. We now have that. And so the vows we would say is, you know, we promise to love you, to honor you, to cherish you, to keep ourselves only unto you as long as we shall live. And that's what we say to Christ. Very simply, I promise Jesus to love Jesus with all my heart. I do. To honor him to serve him in all ways, to be faithful to him, forsaking all others, keep myself only unto him. 99% doesn't work. 99% isn't love. 3.5 days a year, do what you want. Love is 100% or it isn't love. Submission, honoring in all things. You know, we can't stand in the middle. With, we talked about this in my Sunday school class today. We can't be lukewarm. A husband or a wife that's lukewarm will soon be in hot water. <laughs> a Christ follower who is lukewarm is not a follower of Christ. There is no middle road that goes. Do we stumble? Do we fall? Do we make mistakes? Are we still sinner rat dogs? Absolutely. But we love the Lord Jesus Christ and strive to follow him. And that's what communion is a reminder of. It's a reminder that we should examine ourselves before we take the elements. Before we take the body and blood of Christ, is he on the, is he on the throne of our life? Is he the focus of our life? Have we been crucified with Christ that he might live through us? That's the challenge as we examine ourselves. Would you join me in prayer, please? Heavenly Father, we, we stop for a holy moment as we remember your life, your love, your death individually and personally, and the payment for, for each of our sins. Your love is so great. And yet, it's not removed, it's here. And you invite us into a covenant relationship with you. That as we lay our lives down for you, as you laid yours down for us, that we can celebrate, we can announce, and be thrilled and look forward to your coming. We thank you that you're the God that's here. Let each of us examine our hearts and celebrate the truth that you give us. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Amen. For those of you who are new at Crossroads, uh, we put the elements out. We have two, actually they're put out two different ways. We've got little, uh, little cups, little individual things. If you want to be uh, totally COVID safe, you can take it back and, and open it up yourself. Or we've got the cup and little paper wafers with the thing in it, still trying to be safe. Uh, but pick up the elements and uh, take them back to your seat and take them as God leads. Uh, band will be playing music so we can uh, kind of have some time with God in this time. Thank you guys. Um, again, as we close, uh, an invitation. Uh, if, if you're here and you're not sure, you know, we live in a world where death is certain. If you're not sure if you were to die today and, and you would go to heaven and you want to be sure, you want to know more, please call Please come in. Let's talk. That's why we're here. If those books that are in the back, please, if you'll read them and you have questions, they may answer them. But, but come in and talk. This is the most important.
important thing, important message that we can give. Uh, thank you for being here. Hope to see you next week. We're going to open uh, this, this book of prophecies, one-third of the Bible, about Christ's first coming and also his second coming. So please join us for that next week on our travel log. Coffee and donuts is lurking there in the back, so uh, go get some. Thanks, guys.